Hello, and welcome to this episode of Best Ever or Guilty Pleasure. My name is Jarrett, and I love movies. Today, we will be watching an iconic movie, arguably the beginning of the non-James Bond spy movies with some memorable scenes. Uh, today, we will be watching Mission Impossible. Released in 1996, this movie created a spy movie frenzy. James Bond has obviously been a thing, with three movies being released in the 1990s alone, all with Pierce Brosnan as the titular character. Mission Impossible was a remake of a TV show that aired in the 60s and the 70s. Tom Cruise was cast as the main character. He was already super popular, but Mission Impossible would prove to be a major vehicle for Tom to gain even more stardom. The movie is rated 66% on Rotten Tomatoes with a 71% audience score. The franchise has only really gotten better with its latest movie, released in 2018, rated at a 97%. It was hard to choose which one to watch, as uh, the original three, uh, I believe uh, MI3, was the most popular. I figured I would go with the original, because honestly I remember this one the most. There is a lot to remember with this movie, from the amazing action sequences with Tom Cruise doing his own stunts, more on that later, the iconic theme song, the famous scene with Ethan Hunt, Tom Cruise's character, suspended from the ceiling. This movie has really pushed the spy movie genre forward. My dad really loved this movie, and we watched it often. I watched each of the subsequent movies as they came out, up until about the fourth one. I saw the latter movies after they had been out for a while. It was really cool for this one, uh, for my nine-year-old self to see. The movie was directed by Brian De Palma, who has previously directed iconic movies like Carrie and Scarface. He wouldn't direct any of the sequels, with each film getting a different director except for the last two. It stars Tom Cruise, as I mentioned earlier, Ving Rhames, and John Voight. This movie was clearly created with a franchise in mind, and the tone set with this movie is a great start. The idea of rogue agents and scrapping a team together you can trust will be a trope, followed by pretty much every other movie, with one of the sequels even being called Rogue Nation. This movie opened on Wednesday, May 22nd in 1996, and it beat out Terminator 2's Wednesday box office record. It would then go on to break the May opening weekend records as well as Memorial, Memorial Day box office records. It would lose all of those records, though, to the Lost World Jurassic Park the next year. It would gross over $450 million worldwide. The franchise itself has grossed over $3.5 billion at the box office over six different movies. There are two more movies planned for release this year in 2023 and next year, 2024. I remember this movie starting a whole spy movie frenzy. This movie has been parodied over and over with the iconic dun-dun-dun-dun theme showing up practically anytime a spy shows up in any sort of... Uh, uh, sketch or, or skit or anything like that. Uh, MI2 came out in 2000 and MI3 in 2006. Other spy movies popped up after this one came out, like The Bourne Identity, star, uh, starting that series in 2002, Austin Powers, starting in 97, Spy Kids in 2001, Charlie's Angels in 2000, etc. I'm not saying that this is the first spy movie by any 
sense, but it definitely is a Genesis movie for the spy movie deluge of the late 90s and early 2000s. As I'm making that list before, I'm reminded uh, just how prevalent the spy thriller was during this time period. A lot of these franchises are ones that I watched as a kid. They're still coming out today, but the late 90s and early 2000s were chock full of great examples. I'm excited to see if this movie really holds up as a great spy movie. With it being 2023, does a spy movie that uses spy technology from the mid-90s hold up? Does my current opinion of Tom Cruise color his performance from before I knew he was a bit off? Let's watch the movie and find out. Next, I will watch the movie and take notes on what I see. What I will be looking for is, does this movie hold up? Is it a best ever or a guilty pleasure? Spoiler alert for this movie and probably the whole franchise. We'll see about that. We'll be back in a bit. And we're back. That movie was so much fun to watch, and I have a lot to talk about, so let's get going. First, let's talk about the time period. This movie came out in and was set in the 90s, and it definitely shows. There's a lot of technology in this movie, uh, which really dates it. They lay into the technology aspect, of course, with it being a spy movie. There are a lot of gadgets that don't make a whole lot of sense, but are still pretty funny when thinking about what they were trying to achieve. The laptops are huge and bulky. The screens in them are square, not widescreen like we have now. Uh, and surprisingly, the ones that Ethan and Luther use are Apple computers, uh, sporting the colorful Apple logo, not the white one that we are used to seeing now. Uh, this was before they were really known for their aesthetic. The internet was still pretty new in, uh, in households in 96. Uh, AOL, the premier internet provider in the 1990s, had just reached 5 million subscribers in 96. Ethan scrolls through Usenet groups for looking for Job, which is kind of hilarious. Uh, Usenet groups are usually, are essentially the original web pages and forums. In order to access something you were interested in, you would access a Usenet group on that interest. You didn't have to type in internet access to get online like Ethan did, though. Uh, you just loaded up AOL, listened to your modem sing you the song of its people, and then hear the dulcet tones of the AOL guy saying, You've got mail. I remember it being a little more sophisticated than what they used in the movie, but I guess proprietary is synonymous with spy tech. Nokia brick phones are prominently featured, as Luther has one in the end scene next to his Apple PowerBook. Max uses a cell phone that I believe is also a Nokia. Phones in, with internet weren't really introduced until 2001, uh, and the famous iPhone didn't come out until 2007, so smart, smartphones were pretty far off in this movie. Ethan uses payphones to make his communications, uh, which don't really exist anymore, which is kind of crazy to think about. Uh, he even has a special tool that he screws onto the bottom part of the receiver to establish a, a secure connection. The rest of the gadgets are pretty interesting for the time. Uh, the agents wear special glasses with tiny cameras in them, which is pretty advanced for the time. Uh, there's not even really a good commercial option for that kind of thing nowadays. Hannah uses a pair of glasses that dim, like transition lenses, but these kind of do it at a touch of a button, uh, and allow her to follow the enemy agent uh, through the party after he gets sprayed with that yellow mist. 
Ethan uses the uh, red light, green light gum twice, which uh, with uh, explosive, pun intended, results both times. That seems grossly impossible to pull off, but hey, it's a movie. Now let's talk a little bit about Tom Cruise. Uh, He was already a big star at this point, but this movie really pushed him further into stardom. He decided to forego his regular $20 million fee in order to get this movie made, only taking a percentage of the box office, which ended up being the smart choice. I mentioned at the top of the series, uh, the top of the uh, the podcast, that this series has grossed over $3.5 billion with two more movies on the way. Definitely a smart choice. Before I go any further, I will say that I don't really agree with a lot of Tom Cruise's personal choices. He does have a lot of controversy surrounding him, and a lot of that came out after this movie came out. Um, A lot of that was stemming from his involvement in the Church of Scientology. I respect Cruise's contributions to the movies, and that's really it. Uh, This movie came in under budget and on time thanks to Cruise doing his own stunts. This has been a huge factor in the movies because rumor has it that he's still doing those those stunts at age 60. It's pretty impressive uh, considering some of the crazy things that happen in these movies. I remember the breathtaking scenes of Cruz hanging outside the world's tallest building, the Burj Khalifa, in the movie Ghost Protocol. Cruz, I think, was about 48 at the time of filming that one. As much as people don't really like Cruz because of his personal life, I have to admit he makes the Mission Impossible movies. He is Ethan Hunt. He really makes this a great movie. Okay, back to the actual movie itself. Uh, The movie definitely has a certain look about it. Brian De Palma has a directing style that is distinct. There are certain shots that he uses to tell his stories that are easily recognizable across all of his movies. So bear with me because I will be talking a little bit about film theory. First, he uses a lot of close-ups. Close-ups can be used to give a sense of intimacy, but can also create a sense of anxiety. You are literally in someone's face, in their personal space. De Palma has close-up shots between two characters to show their immediate relationship. A great Example of this is Hunt and Kittredge in the restaurant after Hunt realizes that IMF has brought another team. The two are shown back and forth talking close up as they have a pretty intense conversation. The shot brings even more drama to the action. Next, he uses a lot of what's called a Dutch angle. Simply put, it's a crooked shot. Most films that are shot are even and level. But when you slightly turn the camera, you create what's called a Dutch angle, which brings even more anxiety to the shot. De Palma uses this in scenes with villains to kind of create more sinister feelings, like something's off. The scene I mentioned before between Kittredge and Hunt is not only close up, but Dutch, which added to the anxiety of that scene. Dutch angles are used in a lot of horror movies to show that something is just not right with what's going on. And last, and probably my favorite, is something called a split diopter. De Palma uses this technique a lot in his films. Uh, it's hard to explain, so let me let me try. When you when you see a split diopter, well, okay, when you see a regular shot, your eye is usually drawn to whatever is in focus, whether it's in the background or the foreground or even sometimes in the middle. 
what is in focus is governed by what is called depth of field. Depth of field is exactly that. It's a field. You can have one small thing in focus and everything else out of focus. Think of the portrait mode on uh, the, your phone's camera. Or you can have kind of everything in focus. It's, it's really not possible through normal means to have two separate things in focus, like one in the foreground and one in the background. This is where the split diopter comes in. It's a special lens that attaches to a normal lens to uh, that allows for an interesting effect that you probably have seen. It definitely shows up a few times in this movie. Um, an object or a person in the foreground is in focus. An object or person in the background is also in focus. And the middle of the scene is blurry. It's used several times. Uh, the coolest scene in this movie that it's used in is when the guy is manning the computer uh, at the vault. Uh, he's sitting at the computer and Hunt is hanging quietly above him. You see both the guy and Hunt in perfect focus. The whiteness of the room hides the blur in the middle, which makes the shot look really cool and seamless. Some split diopter shots are obvious, and they have the but they have the effect of creating uh, anxiety because it's it, it's kind of an odd thing to see. Uh, it also points out multiple things in the scene because it draws your eyes to both, since both of them are in focus. De Palma uses this a lot in his movies, and you see them occasionally in other movies. This movie relies a lot on subversion. It's a spy movie, so obviously. Uh, nothing is as it seems, and it shows. The enemy seems to be Kittredge for a good part of the movie, uh, but it ends up being Phelps in the end. We are led to believe the whole time that Ethan's whole team died, uh, including Phelps, and Kittredge believes that it was Hunt who did it, leading to Hunt being disavowed. A mysterious character named Job is at the center of it, and we don't learn who it is until the very end when Phelps shows up out of the dark with a gun. I remember sort of knowing that Phelps was the bad guy all along, but watching this again, the subversion is not as sophisticated. The literal smoking gun is the shot that Hunt watches on his on his watch. Literally, literally has a watch camera. Um and it's Phelps' supposed killer shooting Phelps. I would forgive Hunt because of the small screen he was watching it on, but it was obviously, obviously Phelps turning his gun around toward himself. Like, there, there wasn't even any attempt to hide it. When I watched it again, it was like, wow, that's really obvious. Uh, let alone the fact that Hunt ran directly to the bridge... When it, where Phelps was shot, and there's no one around. No one really could have conceivably gotten off the bridge without him seeing it. I appreciate what Hunt did and tried to flush Job out, going as far as to do the famous heist of the knock list at Langley and planning an elaborate meetup on the train for every party involved with the theft. It obviously led to amazing scenes, like Hunt being suspended inches from the floor, that famous scene that everybody's seen. Uh, oh, and behind-the-scenes note, apparently when filming the scene where uh, where Ethan Hunt drops down and he just inches stops inches from the, the floor, uh, Tom Cruise kept on hitting his head on the floor, uh, but he decided to put coins in his shoes as a counterbalance, and it worked. He was able to go down and his head didn't hit the floor. 
all in all, I I'm glad that I watched the movie again. It was definitely worth the rewatch, despite the outdated technology and knowing the ending, which kind of ruins it. Um, it was still fun and intense. The train scene was still amazing, with Ethan jumping around on high, on the high speed and a high speed train and literally battling a helicopter. I think part of that comes from the fact that uh, Tom Cruise he petitioned to have a a special um, fan that was able to produce super high winds to make it look very realistic. That sort of practical effect there uh, makes it kind of hold up over the years. It's still just as intense today as it was back then. Uh, the movies themselves get more and more sophisticated, and the budget clearly goes up. Uh, but this one really holds its own as the original Mission Impossible. I see a lot of things from this movie pop up in other movies. Uh, I just recently watched the show Kaleidoscope on Netflix, and not to spoil anything there, but uh, some of the details in this movie seemed pretty familiar when I was watching that one. I would recommend a rewatch on this movie. Uh, I may watch more of them in anticipation of the new one coming out sometime this year, and I would recommend you do the same. Thanks for listening to this episode of Best Ever or Guilty Pleasure. Please rate and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, watch more movies.